Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Mark Dworkin. Mark Dworkin and Melissa Young are award-winning documentary film directors, veteran uh, directors of films about social justice issues, several of which have been on PBS, and they are the directors of an important new film called Plain Truths. You can find them at movingimages.org, and you can find this new movie at Plain PlainTruths.org. Plain Truths looks at the increased activity at the U.S. Navy base on Whidbey Island in Washington State in Puget Sound, uh, activity that is making life unbearable for locals and wildlife, collateral damage in the ever-increasing militarization of this society. Mark Dworkin, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David, and glad to be on. Thanks for coming on, and I'm sorry that we couldn't have Melissa Young on together with you due to my own uh, technical uh, difficulties. Um, and, and thank you for making this film. Uh, Whidbey Island in Puget Sound, uh, tell us what, what sort of a place that is. Well, it's very rural, pretty much small-town environment. Whidbey Island is actually technically the largest, the longest island in the United States. And um, I bring that up because the Navy base, which is a naval air station, it's airplanes that usually are on aircraft carriers, but they train at that naval air station. Um, That enterprise dominates the economy of the northern end of the island. Much of the rest of the island is agricultural, um, small farmers, retired people, etc., the very southern end of the island is not that far from Seattle, and so there even are people who commute. Um, the other thing about it is that the Navy Air Station has been there since 1941. But at that time, the airplane, there were a lot fewer people on the island. And also at that time, the airplanes themselves were smaller. They weren't even jets. They were much quieter. And things have changed over the years. More people live on the island. And the jets that keep coming in, especially the latest new ones, which are the loudest jets in the world, um, are becoming unbearable for people. Which kind of jets are the loudest in the world? They're F-18s. They're called Growlers. They're made by Boeing. And I, I don't, I'm not a military expert. I don't think that those jets are louder than, air, than passenger planes are at airports, um, considerably. And my guess is that there's things that they do about passenger planes at airports to make them quieter so they don't disturb people. But that may have an effect on their performance. So these jets are unencumbered by such extra apparatus, and they are fiendishly loud. And making life unbearable sounds like a pretty... This is more than just an annoyance. What are the the impacts on, on people and wildlife? Well, the... We notice the effects on people more here. And, for example, um, the, there's a place in which these planes practice taking off and landing so that they can do it on aircraft carriers. If you accept that we have aircraft carriers, which I think is an issue, um, but if you accept that we have aircraft carriers, people have to learn to take off and land on them. And they do it on solid ground first because that's easier than a ship that's bouncing around in the ocean. That place where they take off and land from 
is about two miles from the hospital, a high school, elementary and middle school, and in the classes at the schools, they have to stop when the airplanes fly over because they can't hear. And people, a lot of people live fairly close to where this practice field is. A good friend who's been there for 50 years, and we, vis- we have visited, and in somebody's modern house with doors and windows closed, when the planes fly over, you can't hear yourself think. You can't talk to somebody. You can't have a conversation on the phone. The other thing is that there are many people who are small farmers. And, of course, when the planes are flying over and they're out in the field and they're talking to one another about how to do whatever task they're doing at that moment, they can't communicate because they can't hear. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen studies, including from other communities, opposing similar operations uh, that certain levels of noise uh, have a have a health impact on on children and on brain development. Uh, and have there been these sorts of health studies done? Well, I don't know about the particular things you mentioned, but I do know that um, sound levels over a given amount, that maybe it's a hundred decibels, can actually cause permanent hearing damage. And when these planes are flying overhead, people have taken readings of 120 decibels, 130 decibels, which is considerably louder. Loud enough for permanent hearing damage. Yes. And um, since you mentioned public health, um, we do consider the public health concerns. Another issue in the film, which I don't want to change the subject so much, but the the very same air bases use chemicals that they particular kinds of chemicals that are used to put out fires when there's a fire in an airplane. And they don't have that many airplane crashes, but they do have um, uh, practice. Sorry about that. They don't have that many crashes, but they do need to practice what to do with these chemicals if there is a crash. And those chemicals have now found their way into the water table and into people's wells and into the wells of the biggest town near this airbase at levels that are above what's considered tolerable. So that's pretty amazing, too. And we take as we take up these issues in the film, the film is going to be shown uh, next month at the American Public Health Association Conference in San Diego. So they, they see these as, you know, issues of concern for public health and have chosen to show the film for that reason. It seems like a lot of public, not a lot, but a number of public health experts and and organizations are increasingly willing to treat militarism as a as a public health threat. Uh, do you are you finding this encouraging? Oh yeah, um, both Melissa and I. Melissa and I have been working together for more than thirty years, but before we knew each other, we were both quite active against the war in Vietnam. So we've had peace on our minds and. U.S. military policy on our minds for some years. And what I'm noticing, some people who've tolerated some of these things until recently are beginning to oppose them. Now, part of it might be because the planes, for example, are louder. So if you're in the neighborhood and you tolerated it in the past, you might be less likely to do so now that the new planes have come in. There's also going to be a lot more flights. Uh, instead of about 6,000 operations a year, there will be 25,000 operations a year. So there's going to be flying overhead much more often every day, sometimes until late at night. So 
somebody that we interviewed who's an 85-year-old farmer, grew up not too far from the airstrip where this practice goes on. He, he said to us, we included in his remarks in the film, he said that he's a proud veteran of the Korean War. His ancestors fought in the Civil War. Um, he said, we support our boys. We support our country. We accept that we have a military and we might need it for defending ourselves. These are his ideas. But he didn't accept it, that these kind of planes and that they and their practices that are going on there and their seeming lack of concern for collateral damage. I like the term you used. Oh, I he got said, it from you. <laughs> he said, the Navy defends this by saying we need it for our national security. He said, I don't believe it. Prove it. I don't believe it. So I think that's part of it, is that with all these years, especially mature people like ourselves, um, have seen U.S. military get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more expansive around the world, and themselves are thinking, how much more do we need? Yeah. And, and maybe it makes them less tolerant. Yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical enough to wonder whether the gentleman would be actively working against this if it were in someone else's backyard, uh, given, oh. given that he believes destroying Korea was necessary for the national defense. But uh, Well, he didn't actually say that. He might have done it because it was, he was certainly a younger guy at the time. He might have done it because he accepted things. Sure. But, you know, he's he's a farmer. He's a, I think he's a wonderful guy. He's a farmer, and, you know, what he looks at very closely and intimately is the land that he farms and the people in his own community. Right. And is paying less attention to what might happen in San Diego, where there are similar problems. Mm -hmm. You you raised an interesting question earlier in, in that, you know, these planes are obviously not uh, intended uh, for some sort of uh, supposed military defense of Washington State, but rather for aircraft carriers that are sent exactly. around the world. Is is that a is that a distinction that you found relevant to people you you interviewed? Um, yeah, I mean, people are. People are hesitant to say things criticizing the U.S. military and criticize because they're afraid they'll be seen as unpatriotic. Um, but yes, for sure, um, these, all of this, in fact, the shift of having so many more of those planes here on the West Coast has to do with what Obama called the pivot to Asia. It has to do with U.S. military and foreign policy looking more at China as a potential enemy or certainly an adversary. And your point about aircraft carriers is a good one. We don't need aircraft carriers to defend our country. Whoever wants to come and attack, we have plenty of airstrips on solid ground from which U.S. planes could take off to fight back. The only thing that aircraft carriers are good for is sending your forces far away and giving them a platform to take off from. And in my opinion, that has a lot to do with an overextension of U.S. military policy and meddling in places that we really don't need to be. We are speaking with Mark Dworkin, and the film we're speaking about is Plain Truths. You can go to plaintruths.org to learn more. Uh, the, the local people are not all just sitting back and taking this. There is, there is activism going on. There's a, what, there's a group called the Sound Defense Alliance, sounddefensealliance.org. What, what is that, and what sort of uh, tactics are people using to try to, uh, to stop these planes? Well, um, I'm glad you brought it up. There have been groups um, 
concerned about these issues, taking steps against them on Whidbey Island, on the mainland, both east and west of Whidbey Island. Future Town is in the middle of, is in the western part of Washington State, but there's land to the west and there's land to the east. And there have been local groups in various communities that have each had their own take opposing these things. And the Sound Defense Alliance is something that came together in the last few months, whereas these groups found out about one another and realized they had common concerns, they thought, well, if they could coordinate their efforts and work together, maybe they would be more effective. And so one of the things that they've done, there, there are lawsuits in the works um, suing the Navy, challenging the decision they made to have more planes here and more flights and calling upon them to do it in a place where it would affect people less, a place where there's not so many folks living. Um, other things that are happening is they're having lots of screenings of the, our film, Plain Truth, and it's about a half an hour long, so in a community screening, we've been at many, um, there's lots of chance for people in the audience to talk and put their own ideas out about what they do and do not like and what they'd like to do about it. And... We were at a, such a screening recently, not far from where we live, and about 110 people there. One of the people who was facilitating the session after the film was shown urged people to take their phones, take pictures of people in the room, and to post it on Facebook with an explanation of why they were there. And social media are a way to spread the word on things, and so they're making some creative use of that. Something else that happened just last week was um, near the site of where these airplanes are taking off and landing and bothering people so much. About five or 600 people, by prior arrangement, showed up with big um, cardboard cards that were either dark gray or white, and they held them over their heads. And we've seen this kind of thing on television at sporting events and show on. Right. Somebody had figured out a pattern so that when they held these cards over their heads, it spelled out the words... We hear you. Do you hear us? And the idea was holding these up as if the jets were flying overhead. They could see this and get the message. So people are doing various things they can think of to draw attention to the issue, to get more people to get involved, to have them write to their Congress people and so on, in hopes of at least diminishing what's going on, if not really changing it a lot. And there's a nice little video of that action with the big cards uh, that people can see at SoundDefenseAlliance.org. Um, yes, I, I I always find it myself very encouraging when local campaigns like this get environmental groups or local chapters of environmental groups and peace groups on board with the same thing, because at the national or global level, uh, environmental organizations want nothing whatsoever to do with peace. Uh, even groups with peace in the name, like Greenpeace, will not touch peace with a 10-foot pole. And I, I wonder how that alliance uh, works at the local level there. Well, it is, it is happening. And, you know, to, to the extent that I know people who were involved, I mean, I've lived here for almost 50 years, and a lot of the people that I know who were involved are equally, in their own, as individuals, they're equally concerned about peace and militarism and environmental justice and climate change. So, and that's probably true of a lot of environmentalists out there that really are concerned about peace issues, but their organizations don't want to take it up. In this case, they're taking it up. 
Yeah. I was going to mention one other thing, too. Please. Um, a lot of the people, many people on Whidbey, I mean, don't a lot, but quite a few, especially the northern end, are retired military. And they choose to retire not too far from a Navy base because, or any military base because they get to use the base hospital, they get to shop at the base department store and grocery store, and they get to save a lot of money that way on things and get good services that they're pleased with. At any rate, many of those people who themselves are retired military are opposing what's going on with the airplane. And when we found that out, it was a big incentive to us to make this film, because a big concern is that people will say, oh, you don't want to defend our country. Oh, you peaceniks, you're no good. I'm sure you've run across this. And so we begin and end the film with a retired Navy captain who happens to live in the area. And he wrote an op-ed piece in the Seattle Times, which is the big newspaper in Seattle, condemning what the Navy is doing. And he made it clear to us, he made it clear in the op-ed piece, which is how we learned about him. He also made it clear to us when we met him and interviewed him that he spent 24 years in the Navy. He had a high position at the Pentagon when, at the end of his career. He's not ashamed of the Navy. He has nothing against the Navy. He supports the U.S. military. But it doesn't mean he supports every single thing they do. And he's really strong about what they've been doing here, that that's wrong. And so he's making a distinction between, in his judgment, what's necessary to defend the country and the kinds of things that are going on. And not only that, but when we finished the film and sent him a link so that he could see it, he sent that on to a lot of press around the Pentagon, including the New York Times Pentagon correspondent, a lot of other both active duty and retired Navy people that he knows from his experiences, because he senses that there's a lot of dissension about some things like this, but it doesn't mean people are bold enough to speak out. Yeah. Well, it's good for for everyone to, at every level to move as, as far as they are willing in the, in the right direction, uh, and it certainly helps to have uh, those sorts of uh, spokespeople in the film and, and promoting the film. Um, I... I uh, as someone who doesn't believe the U.S. Navy serves a useful purpose and doesn't believe it's a force for good in the world uh, or protecting anyone, but rather endangering them, um, I, I still have to wonder when I go to sounddefensealliance.org and at the very top it says, For decades, Northwest Washington state communities have been willing partners with the military in protecting our national security. And I wonder whether promoting the idea that the military protects people ends up helping the cause or hurting it. Um, because if, if you are going to believe the military protects you, you're going to be willing to put up with certain things, aren't you? It's true. Although in the example I gave, the Navy retired Navy officer who's in our film, he does believe the military protects us, but he also thinks what they're doing here is wrong. But I would go on to say... I can't speak for the fo for the folks that put together the Sound Defense Alliance. I mean, I respect them and so on. Right. Um, but they're their own thing. Um, I can't speak for them officially, but I can offer the opinion that they're being cautious, that they don't want people in the area that otherwise think the military is okay to condemn them and not be willing to listen to their concerns. Of course. So maybe they're being, you know, ste stepping too far in that direction. 
Is is the demand, and I guess I mean the demand from them or from particular groups or from what you think the demand should be, uh, to end these flights, uh, or is it to keep them at their current uh, disastrous level rather than significantly increasing them? Some people, um, some people say they want them to go away, and I would say that's a minority. Um, I wouldn't mind if they went away personally. Um, but some people want them to go away. Others say they don't want them to um, increase the numbers that they have. So a few years ago, when the new airplanes, these growlers, came on board and were beginning to fly, we heard from some friends, people I've known for 40 years, who live nearby, who got in touch with us and said, this is driving us crazy. The old planes were bad enough, but we learned to live with them. This is this major um, assault on our quality of life. Could you please come up and do some filming to show people we can put it online? And we did that. And at that time, it was not yet projected that the numbers of flights would increase as much as they will. So it has been on the order of five or 6,000 operations per year. It's now projected to go to 25,000. And that means more hours per day, more days per year, and so on. Something else I wanted to mention, and we bring it up in the film, um, we're in an area that has a lot of national parks. There's actually a small national park on Whidbey Island itself. But the major national park is to the west in the Olympic Mountains, Olympic National Park. There's also a national park or something like a national park among some other islands to the north north of us, the San Juan Islands. Right. These airplanes will be flying over those places more than in the past. It's now projected that they'll be flying every single weekday of the year over the Olympic National Parks. And the sound from those jets is clearly disturbing to animals that will affect, you know, whether they can sleep and their mating habits and so on. The other thing is that um, the mission of these jets, when they Take off. They're, they're meant to be based on aircraft carriers, but what they do when they take off in the aircraft carrier is not just to go drop bombs on somebody, as other jets do, but rather to do what's called electronic warfare. And so they send out powerful electronic signals that are meant to neutralize the radar of the adversaries in a battle. And what they're doing flying over the Olympic Peninsula in the National Park is... Within the National Park on Forest Service roads, there will be trucks with radar on them that will be driving around and sending out radar. And these jets' job is to spot them, detect the radar signal, and neutralize it, or at least do something that shows that if it were a real battle situation, they could have neutralized it. The effect of all of that is a vast flood of radiation from these electronics, which are dangerous. It's dangerous to be too close to a microwave oven all the time, which is similar to radar. And so there's some real concerns about what that's going to do. And it's not what national parks are meant to be for. It's not, and right. And plus, the Olympic National Park, many people that we've spoken with say that the Olympic National Park is probably the quietest place in the United States. But, of course, with these jets flying over, it's not. 
that's going to change. Uh, you know, yep. I, I, I think the first place I, I learned about this was in some articles by a journalist friend named Dar Jamal, who, who's written about this issue. And, and he wrote about a, an economic study of the, the, the Navy base that suggested that it's, in fact, an economic drain on the region. All of the costs, all of the lost opportunity costs, all of the external uh, costs of the damage and so forth, and health costs. Uh, I, I don't know if that makes any difference to someone who has a has a job with the Navy and wants their job, and nobody's offering them any other job. But does it does it help uh, this campaign to? to show people that, in fact, military spending is an economic drain rather than an economic boost? It's a very good question. Dar Jamal is a friend. Um, he's, he appears in our film. We had met him previously, but we saw the very same articles he wrote that made it, and we appreciate him as a very fine researcher and an ethical person. So we interviewed him. And the study was done by a guy named Michael Schumann, he was hired by a local group, and the content of the study, um, you were more or less on track, but I can refine your explanation a little bit. Sure. The Navy base itself has an annual payroll of three-quarters of a billion dollars, $750 million. That's a lot of money. That's money coming that's, in principle, in name, coming into Whidbey Island. Um, that wouldn't come otherwise. It would be hard to find an industry of that magnitude that would bring that much money in. Having said that, the study addresses what are the costs associated with that. So, for example, as they bring more people into the city of Oak Harbor, which is the biggest city on Whitby, it's up where the Navy base is located, there's more kids in the schools. And that, um, that if they live in houses on the military base, there's no property taxes that are paid. So the schools have additional burdens on them in that city, as do the roads, as do the sewage systems, various things, by having more people living there that are not compensated by the government. Yeah. So there's some serious losses of income that way. And it becomes like the, the way the pattern is actually in a lot of other places that you've probably considered over the years. Some people um, are getting a lot of money out of the deal. Other people are not. And it's important to make that distinction. And, and, and Also, another part of the study is that, um, yes, there's thousands of people living up there who are employed by the Navy, so they're on that payroll of $750 billion, million a year. Um, but if they shop at the supermarket on the military base, which all the um, military personnel are certainly entitled to do, there's no sales tax paid, so it doesn't go to the state, doesn't go to the city, and that's the principal source of income right. for the government here. Um, so Mark. even though a lot of money's coming in, sometimes it's spent in ways that don't the benefits don't go aren't widespread. Mark Dworkin, we could go on for hours. I think it's a wonderful film. Uh, we have less than a minute left. I, I want to tell people they can go to worldbeyondwar.org and, and work with a local chapter of our organization and get a discount uh, from you guys generously on doing a community screening. Uh, and they can also buy a DVD or stream online or uh, find screenings uh, at your website, correct? Yes. 
Uh, and um, I can mention also that it will be showing at the American Public Health Association conference in San Diego. Now, that's for people, it's for professionals. So it would be people going to the conference already and paying the fees to, to enter. It's also showing in a film festival coming up soon, in about two weeks, on one of the islands in the San Juan Islands. And it's called the Friday Harbor Film Festival. It's October 26th and 27th that it will be showing. We have and to. We'll have to leave it there. Find more screenings at okay. PlainTruths.org. Mark Dworkin, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at RootsAction.org. Help end war at WorldBeyondWar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.